Welcome to Talk About, where we talk about walkabouts. On today's episode, part two of my conversation with Rory McLeod, we talk a little bit more about his journey through the United States and more of the more dramatic episodes that happen with him. Also, we dive into the scattering of his father's ashes in Scotland. And finally, we complete the journey by discussing his travels through Sub-Saharan Africa. We also talk a little bit about what happens now. Now that you've quote-unquote crossed the finish line, what do you do with your life? Part two of my conversation with Rory McLeod. Enjoy. I'm like the absolute last person anyone would have ever had thought would do something like this. I mean, I, I don't have an athletic bone in my body. Um, I, I was cut by the seventh grade basketball team. I mean, that wasn't even like the JV squad. It was like the team <laughs> everyone made. And the coach at the time, the coach at the time, you know, cut me for good reasons. He said, you know, basically he's like, Rory, you can't dribble. And I said, I know, but I can't shoot either, but there's gotta be something I can do. And he said, yeah, try out for soccer. So I went out for the soccer team. I was terrible at soccer, but because I gave it like my 100%, and that was around the same time the movie Rudy came out, um, I kind of became like the, the team mascot. So I, I earned a place on the team, but never really played much. College, I basically just drank the whole time and wasn't really very athletically inclined there. And so the point, is, and I've also had a have a really throw, uh, low th- threshold for pain. I mean, I don't like to suffer. <laughs> um, so like when you like kind of like knowing me who I was like in my early years and certainly in my twenties, you never would have picked me as someone who would want to put himself through this long physical, but also more importantly, mental grind of riding a bicycle every single day for months and months on end across vast distances. Um, and again, I mean, the, it all goes back to our previous conversation, which was the, the why I did it. And that's what ultimately fueled me into doing it. So while I was scared of many things and while I certainly didn't have the, um, the pedigree for that type of um, athletic work, um, because I wanted it so badly, I was able to kind of push myself to just do it anyway. Um, but as a result, I mean, when you do these long journeys, I mean, anyone who's done anything like it, you know, you're going to ultimately test yourself in many, many ways. I mean, I've had, um, and we'll get into some of these specific stories. I mean, I had a story where I, you know, I literally crashed my bike and ended up in a hospital and still rode 80 miles afterwards. Um, Seriously? And, and then to, and oh yeah, and, and that, 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 that happened in, in Scotland. So that'll come when we talk about Europe, but, um, but, uh, but to your point about America, just since that was the first, the first trip. So uh, I started the journey uh, July 6th, I left California and drove up to Portland, Oregon. And there's a tradition in cross-country bike touring um, that you start your trip with one wheel in one ocean, and then you end it with the um, other wheel in the opposite ocean. And that way you can say you truly rode across the country. So I got up to Portland, Oregon, and Portland's I can't remember exactly how far, but about a hundred miles inland from the coast. So of course I wanted to start my trip by dipping my rear tire in the Pacific, which meant on my very first day, I actually went the wrong direction and went to, went West to the Pacific. Um, <laughs> just so I could literally have the photo of me dipping my tire into the ocean. Uh, but you, you know, you have to manufacture these 
little moments along the journey so that it gives you something to aim for. I mean, just literally knowing that at some point I was going to get to Maine and dip my front tire into, the, into that was one small little nugget that got me through some of the hard days. Um, so anyway, uh, the, you know, the U.S. trip started off like any trip of its kind, whereas you start going and at first everything is brand new to you. And so, you know, the very first night I slept uh, outside a stranger's house. Um, there's a great community of people uh, who host bicyclists like me. Uh, if you're familiar with couchsurfing, it's the equivalent of couchsurfing, but specifically for bicyclists. And the uh, community is called Warm Showers. And it's, it's an online community. It's all volunteers. Anyone can be a host. You don't have to be a bicyclist to host someone, but you do have to be a bicyclist to receive a, a host um, or to be hosted rather. So it's, anyway, can I just, my very can first, I just jump in yeah. here? Cause it's, you know, it's what's yeah. really fascinating is when I've interviewed one other gentleman for talk about and the generosity of people is essential to the success of the trip. And, oh, without question. And it's, and it's, it, that goes without like, even just going on walkabouts, I feel like the gratitude and the generosity of the individual the gratitude of the individual and and the generosity of the person providing whatever that person needs shelter food uh comfort is essential to the the emotional fuel on the journey oh without a doubt i mean i i we talked a little bit about this last time in terms of like why i did it and it was you know that need to connect with real people and experience you know, the positive aspects of American culture, not just the negative stuff that we see all the time in the news. Um, but then when you actually receive it, you know, as you mentioned, Trey, it's like, it is such a jolt to your system. So many times on my journey, I would show up at someone's house and I would just be down in the dumps or dejected. I'd start, maybe start to wonder why I was still doing it or just having a hard, grueling day. And then you come into their home and oftentimes these are perfect strangers you've never even met before. Um, you might meet them at a gas station or through this online community where maybe you've sent them an email, but that's pretty much all the correspondence you've had with them. So you show up, you don't know what to expect. You don't know what their home is like. You don't know if they've got, if they're a 60 year old couple that are retired or if they're, you know, in their twenties. Um, but you show up at their home cause you need a place to stay and their level of enthusiasm for having you there and for showing you their life and to, into introducing you to, the way they live and to their family members. And then they give you typically a cooked meal and a shower and a bed to sleep in. And all of this is for free. And every single time that happened, I would leave those places so reinvigorated for my trip and so energized to keep going. Um, and, and that was kind of the stuff that might have been under the category of like prearranged. You know, like I said, you might send an email to someone and they agree to host you. But the best is when it was unexpected. I mean, so many times you're just sitting at a diner, especially in America. I mean, I'll say one thing. You cannot go into a small town in America on a bicycle and not have someone come up to you. Um, and so many times people would buy me my meal. I mean, I would literally go to pay uh, with the cashier for my, my hamburger or something, and they'd say someone else had already picked up the tab. I'd actually, one time that happened to me three times in the same meal, literally three different people all offer to pay for my meal, all at the same restaurant. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't happen if I was just some guy in a car or just uh, anyone else passing through town, but because they saw that bicycle out front and they saw the, the bags and they saw that 
I must have been working towards something. Yeah, I think um, I it think just Ameri- unlocks that I'm curious. I think Americans appreciate um, the drama of life, right? Like they appreciate the theatrics of things. And I'm not saying that your journey is theatrical, but you certainly were wearing uh, a costume in, in many ways. Like you were on this journey wearing something they could easily visually identify with and say, oh, I get that person because we're such a visual superficial society. But the curiosity in your journey is what surprises me, is these people saw you and were curious and had empathy. And to me, that's for sure. It's amazing. Yeah. And, so, and uh, my understanding, having now traveled extensively throughout America and then Europe and then a little bit of Africa, is that, yeah, I feel like Americans, it's still kind of new. I mean, first of all, America as a culture, we're still very much tied to our work and tied to the, the concept of as we talked about last time, this, this notion that you just kind of live this structured traditional life. And so when you see someone kind of enter into your world um, who is sort of outside that, um, it, it automatically stokes curiosity. Whereas if, in Europe, it's more common. I mean, if you're in Germany, or you're in Austria, you see people who are bike touring all the time. I mean, like it's a dime a dozen. Um, whereas if you show up into like a small little town in Wyoming, you know, they've probably never seen anyone uh, doing what you're doing. Um, and so they're going to just right away be curious. Um, and then once they start to talk with you, I do think that Americans are naturally drawn towards people who are trying to achieve something noble or grand. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't matter who it was. I mean, so many times, like a lot of times the gas station attendant person who probably makes minimum wage would, try to offer some some sort of kindness towards me either just giving me a free ice cream cone or a lot of times when they found out the charity work I was doing they would fish out a $20 bill right out of their pocket and hand it over um one time I was in this uh nature reserve in Michigan and I I literally just needed a place to eat lunch I had a sandwich with me and I just wanted to stop get sit on a bench somewhere so I walked into this nature reserve and immediately was greeted by these six women who worked there they hand me a bunch of cookies that one of them had made that morning. And then when they found out about the charity, they all started fishing into their pockets and handing me cash that I put towards the, the charity. And these, you know, they didn't expect me to show up. Uh, but what happens is I think, especially bicyclists, because it is such a, it's such a visible thing. It, um, and it is so physical that it unlocks people's kindness. And what it does is it also brings their guard down because when they see me, they know that, first of all, I'm vulnerable because I'm the one who's in this situation who isn't from there. And I'm on this bicycle and that's a very vulnerable position to be in. And so whatever maybe whatever guard they might have that would be up for a normal person um, that they might meet in a restaurant, they let their guard down because their curiosity is too much for them and they, and they want to know more. Uh, and as a result, then they start to talk to me and it's just amazing. And so those little small acts of kindness. I mean, they really add up over time. And, and that has saved me so many countless times when I've had a bad day. Um, those are the things that get me through those moments and then on to the next day. Yeah. I mean, I think generosity is, um, you know, I think people admire people who are going on walkabouts or quests just because it's ingrained in our culture as Americans. But the, the idea of generosity um, is also there. And I think, um, I think that generosity is, a, a 
to um, practice. It's very difficult to practice. Um, well, and I will say to that note, what's also uh, difficult to practice if you're the traveler is to be able to accept that generosity um, and to do it with, um, it, you know, a lot of times you're in a position where someone wants to offer you something and you don't feel comfortable accepting it either because of the situation that they're clearly in um, or maybe it's just something you don't even want. Like so many times people are just offering me like a t-shirt. I don't need another t-shirt. I have three t-shirts. I can't pack a fourth. Like there's only so much stuff you can put on a bike. Um, but you have to still be able to accept it because what I realize is it's in, in the end, it's not even about me. It's about these people, these individuals feeling good about themselves. So they feel like they've contributed to something bigger than them. And I'm just the, I'm just kind of like the receptacle for it. Um, and so you have to learn to be able to accept that. So a lot of times too, when someone wanted to buy my lunch or buy my dinner, uh, you know, I've learned now that I, you know, will politely try to explain to them, you know, thank you, but I can, you know, I'm perfectly capable of paying for my own meal. But if they insist, I'm not going to put up a fight because not because I necessarily need the free meal, but because I know what it means to them, that they want to be able to look themselves in the mirror later that night and say they contributed something noble and bigger than themselves. Uh, and so it's, you have to be able to receive that generosity. Uh, and it is, it, it's awkward at first. Uh, I mean, it gets even more awkward when you go to a place like Africa uh, and some of those countries I was in, like in Zambia or Zimbabwe, when the people you're meeting have absolutely nothing. And you know that if they're offering you food, it's probably the food they have to feed their family for that week. Uh, and how do you accept that? How do you say yes to that? Knowing that it's going to come at such great cost to them. Uh, but you have to, because that's, that's kind of like the unspoken arrangement is that if someone offers you generosity, you have to be able to accept it, do it graciously. So take me, so take me through some of these, let's, let's move, let's move into some, some of the more um, story driven things that kind of demonstrated um, that kept kind of fueled you as you went along. Because I like, I guess I like sort of the action adventure stuff, but I think the thing that you and I really enjoy discussing is more of the, um, the emotional intelligence or the emotional fuel mm -hmm. that really kind of drove you along. Do you have any particular stories um, in the United States that where you were at your lowest, but you had a moment that, that kind of lifted you up and kept you going? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got plenty of these stories under different categories. So if we want to just talk United States, for sure. Um, so I'll give you one example of where um, I was able to keep pushing myself um, through a tough spot. And that was um, actually when I met other cyclists. So it's very common when you're doing one of these journeys, whether you're a solo hiker of the Appalachian Trail or doing a bike trip across America, whatever it might be, you're going to, you're going to eventually encounter other people doing the same thing. Um, and especially if you're going along a popular route um, in America, there's a number of these bike routes that people travel. And so if you do it in the summertime, you're bound to meet one of them eventually. And if you happen to, and there's, and there's an unspoken rule among cyclists that you can travel together as long as you can keep up with one another uh, and of course, as long as you get along, uh, but the minute one of you is going a little bit faster, or a little bit slower than the other, you have to just leave each other. No, no goodbye, no excuses. You just part ways because 
you know, you're on these long journeys and the last thing you need is for someone to be going um, at a speed that they're not comfortable with, because eventually that's just going to lead to resentment all around. So um, on my journey, you know, you meet various people and sometimes there's a click and sometimes there isn't. Um, but I was very lucky that um, I met these three guys when I was in Wyoming um, and we ended up traveling together across all of Wyoming and all of South Dakota together. Um, and they were a trio, really good friends um, who have their own interesting story about why they started the trip. Um, and we just hit it off and why that became a consequential uh, moment for me was that was at a point in my trip where um, I had been doing it for a few weeks and had been alone and, and, the, and the novelty of biking alone and having all these great experiences was starting to wear off. Um, you know, at that point in my journey, I had sung every song I knew in my head. I had recounted every relationship I'd ever had before. <laughs> I had played every mental game. I mean, there was, there was one or two days where I spent the entire day speaking in the Bane voice of Batman, um, you know, just cause you have to do these little tricks just to entertain yourself. Um, you know, getting truckers to sound their horn or high-fiving flowers along the side of the road. I mean, for a while, that stuff keeps you going. But then after a while, you get bored even of doing that. So all of a sudden, I met these three guys. And it just totally changed the dynamic of my trip. Because now I went from being the solitary cyclist to being immersed in conversation 24 hours a day. And not just, you know, getting to know each other, but also now you have to adapt styles. Like, where are we going to sleep at night? How are we going to camp? Are we going to cook together? Or are they going to cook their meal? And I'm going to cook my meal. Um, and so you kind of like are forming this little community. And the most interesting thing about it is that at any given moment, that community can break up. Because again, if, if the next day they decide they want to go left and I want to go right, well, then that's what you have to do. And so I met these three guys and it turns out we ended up biking together through some of the hardest stretches of America for me, um, South Dakota, but we were there in early August and it was just absolutely scorching hot. I mean, the middle of the country in, in August is just scorching hot. Um, temperatures like 114 degrees. And on top of that, we, we, we had all been kind of promised by other cyclists who came before us that, if you go west to east, one of the main reasons a lot of people go west to east is you have the wind at your back. Yeah. And so I had been under the delusion that when I got out of the Rockies and I'd hit the plains, that I'd have this great tailwind pushing me from behind. And I would just go hundreds of miles a day across, like, you know, South Dakota and Minnesota. Um, well, it turns out that's not always true. And instead, mm -hmm. we ended up having a combination of crosswind and headwind. Um, going about four, 40 miles per hour. So you have like scorching, scorching heat plus this, you know, ridiculous crosswind that sometimes is a headwind. And if I was by myself, I mean, it just would have been a grind. I don't know. I mean, I would have gotten through it because in the end, I've, I had similar situations happen later on in the trip. But, but because I had this community now I was with, like we were able to just, you know, knuckle down and get through it. And, you know, you, you, while, while the wind's blowing and you're dying of heat, you're telling your stories, you're philosophizing about life. Um, and next thing you know, a really hard 10 hour day becomes manageable because you have someone that you're with. Mm. Um, and what was interesting about that whole group was um, we ended up separating when we got to Minnesota um, because they had plans to go to Chicago and I had plans to go to Minneapolis so we parted ways there. Uh, two of the three ended up completing their rides when they got to the East Coast. 
Um, but the third, Ryan, was doing something similar to me. He had quit his job. He'd given up everything. And like me, he was kind of discovering this new lifestyle that he really enjoyed. And so he and I both ended up cycling around America together, but we both did it our own way, doing it on our own itineraries. But as a result, we stayed in touch. And so we ended up crisscrossing paths many, many times throughout our journeys together, uh, where we'd meet up for a day in Massachusetts or a day in New York. We met up in the Keys. And then he, uh, most importantly, was with me the day my father died when I was in Arizona. Um, and which was, you know, to the day I die, I'll remember, I'll be so grateful for uh, him being there because it was hard enough to be riding my bicycle through the middle of the desert of Arizona when my dad died, but to at least have a friend, you know, with me to distract me for some of the time was, um, was really key. So I have a question. So anyway, for you. I, I have a quick yeah. question for you. Cause I remember I was following you on Instagram during this journey. And I remember you, does Ryan have long blonde hair? He does. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember pictures of Ryan on Instagram or Facebook or something like this during this time period. And I remember you guys had paused in Texas. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> Texas was, uh, well, I, I, to state it clearly, I had paused in Texas. So my, <laughs> my trip almost, my trip had almost come off the rails uh, in Texas, you know, and which is fine. When I, when I started the trip, because I had quit my job and, and, and gone forward totally liberated i knew that there was only a few ways my trip was going to end i mean it was either going to end in some sort of like tragedy in the sense that like maybe i had a crash and broken arm or something um or it would end because i got bored with it and decided you know i'm ready for something new or i would run out of money or fourthly i would fall in love with the place and decide to just stay there um or i guess it's also possible i'd fall in love with a woman and stay there um, but that was probably the least likely to happen given my track, track record with, um, romantic relationships. So anyway, um, I always knew that the possibility would occur that, you know, I'd find a place and love it so much that I didn't want to leave. Um, so what happened was when I was in Texas, I was about, I think a week, maybe 10 days ahead of Ryan at this point. Um, because I guess, as I said, we kept crisscrossing and, and, occasionally he'd be ahead of me and then like Thanksgiving came and he might have spent like a week with his mom and Thanksgiving. So I got ahead of him. So anyway, I was in Texas about a week or 10 days ahead of him. Where, where sorry, and I came I'm to from Dallas. So I just want to know where you where in Texas. Yeah. So I was, I was West, I was like West Texas near, um, I was actually in big bed national park. So my favorite without question, I get this question all the time, uh, which is, you know, what are my favorite places and, or where would I live if I had, you know, decided to stay in America. And without question, I would live in West Texas yeah. uh, for the winters and then Montana for the summers uh, because I fell in love with those two places. Uh, but in West Texas, particularly, I was in Big Bend National Park for a few days, uh, which is the least visited national park in the system because it's so hard to get to it's so far out of the way. Um, and then when you leave Big Bend, then one of the very first towns you get to is this ghost town called Terlingua. Um, and, you know, back in like the, I think it was like late 1800s or 1900s, it was like a boom town for mer uh, mining uh, mercury, um, which they back then used to use for uh, explosives. Uh, so it was a big boom town. And then they discovered other ways to make explosives. And so like every boom town, it went bust. And it was a ghost town forever until the 60s when someone decided to hold this like international chili competition there. And all of a sudden, Terlingua started creeping back to life. Um, 
And now it's got this like really eclectic community of people who work, who live there. And so I just showed up there randomly and just immediately became part of this community um, of misfits and weirdos and adventure seekers who all happened to find living in the desert of Texas appealing. And I loved it. And so what happened was I was only going to be there one night, but then one night turned into two and then I left on the third day and the whole time I was biking away, I was regretting leaving. I just felt like homesick for Terlingua. So I decided to, to go back. Uh, so in the meantime, what was also fueling all that was Ryan was catching up to me while I was spending this time in Terlingua. He was catching up. And so at one point I said to him, I said, Ryan, I mean, this was actually a good story about like to show you how much this town meant to me and also how much I was changing as a person. Because if you go back to the very beginning of the trip, I was so terrified of strangers and drivers and all that stuff. So I said to Ryan, um, if you can get yourself to Terlingua that night, I will find a way to get back there. Since I had, I had left there and gone on to the next town in Presidio. And she said, okay, sure. He'll, he'll get there. So I biked all the way to Presidio, which is one of the most beautiful, but hardest days of biking I'd done. Cause it's very windy and, and hilly. And I got to this town and for the first time in my life, I hitchhiked. Uh, just so I can get back to Trilingua. Uh, and it's the strangest feeling in the world that if you've never hitchhiked, you know, you've seen enough 1980s movies about the horrors of hitchhiking. So like to stick your arm out and, and uh, ex extend your thumb, knowing that like what that means was a, that was a small little scary moment for me. Um, and it turned into a beautiful moment because going back to the concept of kindness of strangers, I ended up getting a ride from this um, young woman from Mexico who was, uh, there in Texas researching her family history because her family believes that her grandmother was actually born in the States. And if she could find the documentation to prove that, then she could become a U.S. citizen. So what was funny about that scenario was she picked me up along the side of the road and she had seen her own, you know, movies about hitchhikers. She had never picked up one before. Uh, so she was as nervous to have me in her car as I was to be in her car. And for the first 10 minutes, we were both kind of like nervously chit-chatting, not realizing that we were answering the same questions of each other over and over again, mm. uh, until eventually we both calmed down. Um, and then uh, she drove me back to Terlingua, and Brian met me there. And then that point forward, he and I uh, continued on together. But yeah, we, I basically, I was stuck in Terlingua for a good like week to eight days. And there was a period there where I thought, and certainly my friends and family all thought that I was never going to leave there, that I was just going to be a Terlingual resident for the rest of my life, which I, I would have been very happy with if, if, if that had ended up that way. But at that point in my trip, I was now three quarters of the way through my ride around America. And, and I really wanted to complete the circle and get back to California just to, just to have closed that loop. Um, but then, of course, I went on to Europe, so I never ended up getting back there. It sounds like you had a couple spots mm. along the journey where you had a chance to stop and a chance to settle down in a place that felt like home to you. And um, like you, I love West Texas. West Texas is a special place. Um, Marfa, Alpine, El Paso, um, that whole area. Um, I shot my feature film out there. Um, right. And I, I was in that town where you shot it. I mean, it's just, it's awesome, man. Like there's, it's magical. It has an energy that's unlike any place I've ever been. Um, it's, it's otherworldly. So I can see why you would want to settle down there. I'd live out there in a heartbeat. 
um, I don't know I'd make a living, but I'd do it. Um, we kind of ended, we kind of ended this conversation with you saying, you know, then I headed off to Europe. Can we pivot to Europe? Can you tell me a little bit about Europe? Because it's sort of, you know, it's sort of pregnant with some kind of shitty memories for you. Right. Well, yeah, going back to, you know, my early twenties for sure. Um, so I don't remember if this was part of the last conversation we had. So forgive me if I repeat anything, but, but, but just to quickly get us to Europe, um, as I was getting deeper and deeper into the America trip and recognizing that my trip really had no end date, that it was going to keep going as long as I had the desire and the will to keep going. Um, at some point I started asking myself, okay, well, what's going to be next? Cause at some point I'm going to end up back in California and having complete a circle of Europe, of, of America. And so what do I do next? And for a while, uh, I was actually considering doing all 50 States, um, because I was doing a circle of America. There was certainly the middle section that I was missing. And so I was thinking about doing that. Um, but I was also getting to a point in my journey where I was getting, um, I wouldn't say bored because, you know, you can never really get bored with America. I mean, the people are always going to be fascinating, but, but America wasn't challenging me, you know, six, seven, eight months into my trip, the way it had on day one. Um, all the things that I had previously been scared of or uncertain about, I had gone and done them uh, ten, tenfold over. So uh, as I was starting to think about what my next move was, um, I was actually with uh, Ryan, um, who I was just speaking about, um, we were in Miami and he had first planted the seed that I could go anywhere, really. I mean, he's like, we already made the hard decision of leaving our, our lives behind to do this. We're never going to be more experienced or better equipped to, to keep traveling than we are right now. He's like, you know, you can go anywhere. And so he wasn't necessarily trying to talk me out of America. He was just helping broaden my horizons a little bit. And so that really planted the seed in my head that I really could attempt to go somewhere else. And if the, if the initial premise of my trip was to kind of rediscover my love for America, now it was growing and evolving so that I wanted to now see, well, what's the rest of the world like? You know, if, if my nine months biking around America has totally changed my opinion of what America's like and what Americans are like, well, what happens if I take that somewhere else? Um, and also, how does that maybe change my opinion of America once you start to step outside of it? So at that point in my journey, um, I was still, of course, biking. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to really plan anything. Um, and I decided, you know what, just go with what you have been thinking about. And for some reason, at that point, the place that kept coming to mind was Ireland um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, there's, with me, there's always more than one reason. There's never like one simple reason. Um, so there was a practical reason. Um, Ireland was a place I'd never been to before. Uh, and I decided if I was going to go somewhere in Europe, knowing that I've had these past experiences that ended in failure, that certainly something can happen again. And so I said to myself, at least go somewhere new so that even if you spend one day in Ireland and then you decide to go home like you did in the past, at least we'll have had that one day somewhere new rather than going back to some place you've been before. Um, but then also I knew that once I left the confines of America, I would basically be going back to zero again in terms of my anxiety. You know, now I was going to new cultures, new languages, 
places that might not necessarily be as friendly towards America. Um, and to me, I decided you rather than go straight into the deep end, let's go somewhere, you know, perceived to be the safest place possible in terms of the transition from America to somewhere outside of America. And to me, Ireland was as safe as it can get because they speak the same language. Every Irish person I've ever met has been extremely friendly. Um, and from what I knew, it was going to be beautiful. So I decided just buy a one-way plane ticket to Dublin and we'll see what happens. And so when I got back to California, um, <clears throat> I uh, basically, <laughs> I, ha- I arranged to have this big party on the beach uh, in uh, right, right near the Cliff House. Um, nice. So I had, I had about 50 family and friends um, show up, including former coworkers at Apple and, and others. Uh, and they all showed up at a big, huge, you know, welcoming home party. At this point, I had been biking for nine months straight. Um, I'd done 15,000 miles around America. Um, and at this point, <clears throat> only a few people knew what my next plans were. So the the question on everyone's mind was, well, what are you going to do now? Are you going you, you to go back to Apple? Are you going to go, you know, what, where are you going to go? Um, only a few people knew that I had already booked this one-way ticket to Dublin. And so after I dipped my tire back in the Pacific to officially and ceremoniously, you know, complete my circle of America, I gathered everyone together to thank them so much for their support um, throughout my journey. And then I said to them, you know, you know, this is a wonderful homecoming party, but uh, I have news for you all. It's actually a going away party because four weeks from today, I'll be heading off to Europe. Uh, And so exactly, you know, one month later, I boarded a plane with my bicycle to Dublin. Um, and I had absolutely no plan whatsoever. I mean, the America trip, I had planned quite a bit in terms of doing a lot of the research. Europe, I had done nothing. I just basically decided I had all this experience I was relying on. And now I was just going to just see how far that would take me. And so the only thing that I did sort of plan, and it was a, uh, it was a, a thought that had got planted in my head once my father passed away, was, um, you know, my father's lineage is a Scottish by descent. Um, his, his father was actually born in Scotland and, um, and certainly generations before that uh, are from there. And where that side of the family originally is from is the Isle of Skye. Um, the seat of the McLeod clan is like in the northern tip of the Isle of Skye, um, uh, as well as Isle of Harris and Lewis. And so when my father passed away, I, I asked my sister, you know, what his... Uh, will expressed and you know basically he just wanted to be cremated but he didn't necessarily have any explicit wishes as to what what should be done with his ashes and so I said to my sister I said you know I am going to go to Europe and if I'm going to go to Ireland there's a good chance that I'm going to make it to Britain and if I go to Britain I'm definitely going to go to Scotland and go visit you know the the area where the McLeods are from and how cool would it be if I could be able to bring you know, our father's ashes with me. Um, and so she agreed. So she sent me, she didn't send me all the ashes, but she sent me a good chunk of them. And um, they arrived at my sister, at my other sister's house in California in the mail. And uh, I loaded them up into a bag and put them on my bike and literally biked around all of Ireland and England and Scotland with this dead weight of my dad's ashes on the back of my bike, which when you're on a bicycle, every gram, every ounce matters. And so I'd be adding something that adds no value to the bicycle um, is not a decision you take lightly, but of course, to me, that was a much more important, you know, emotional decision in bringing that. Um, 
And so I, you know, biked around Ireland and, and England, Scotland uh, with my dad's ashes with me. And then when I finally got to um, Isle of Skye, I had, a, I had a moment where I had to make a decision. And this ultimately leads to one of my like, like life lessons I learned on my journey. Um, and that is, what I had to ask myself, you know, what do I do? I just show up and try to, uh, as I called it, Shawshank, my father's ashes, like basically just scatter them, you know, on the grounds without like, you know, secretly without anyone knowing I was doing it <laughs> or do I, call, do I call ahead and I ask for permission? Um, and I thought about it and I realized, you know, it didn't feel right to just, you know, furtively scatter my dad's ashes. It just felt a little creepy and, and not the right way to be sending him off. Um, but if I called them and asked for permission, there was a very good likelihood they could tell me no. Um, maybe there was some, EU health regulation against that kind of thing. I had no idea. I didn't do any research on it. Um, but one of the lessons I've learned throughout my entire journey, uh, and it's a lesson I, I apply it every day of my life now, is to not say no for other people. Let them say no for you. Um, so in my previous life, before my trip, you know, I was constantly projecting what others were going to say to me. So I would, you know, before I'd ever you know, ask a girl out, I would assume she'd say no to me. And so I just wouldn't ask her out. Um, and that you could apply that to anything in life. And as a result, a lot of times I never actually put myself in a position to ask people for help. Uh, but on the bicycle trip, you have to ask for help. You need people to give you directions or to give you a place to stay or to, you know, offer you a spare wheel when your wheel breaks. Um, and so I had learned time and time again that if you just ask people, they might actually surprise you and say yes. And so I got to the Isle of Skye and I called up the castle and I told them what I was about. I said I was an American on this big bicycle journey and that I was also a McLeod and I had my dad's ashes with me um, and I would like to scatter them. So the, the custodian of the castle said, okay, well, tomorrow show up at, uh, show up at 2 p.m. I'll meet you up front um, and we'll, we'll get you sorted. And I said, okay, fine. So the next day I show up at two o'clock with my bike and I meet the custodian of the castle. Um, now I should pause and mention that the McLeod castle at Dunvegan is, um, you'll have to fact check me on this. I don't know. I can't remember the exact fact, but it's like one of, it's like the only castle in all of Britain, if not some larger area, but it's like the only castle that has been continuously lived in for like 700 years or something. Mm. It's never had a gap. Um, whereas most castles have like 40 years where they're in disrepair or something. Um, but the McLeod castle still has someone living in it. The chief of McLeod's lives there. And so I meet the custodian. He tells me, um, you know, the chief is away, but he'd be happy to help me. Um, so the first thing he does is he hands me a ticket and he says, okay, go tour the castle, be a tourist. It's on us. You know, you're a McLeod and you should go see your family heritage. Uh, then at five o'clock, the castle's going to close for business. Um, and all the tourists are going to leave. And at that point, come meet me back here at the gate. So I said, okay, thanks so much. I park the bike, I go inside and very, you know, first of all, just for me to be able to visit my family, you know, heritage uh, is such a big deal for me. I mean, on my bike trip, I visited old apartments. I lived in Boston. I went to the Statue of Liberty in New York, my old camp in North Carolina. And so on a bicycle, you can get to go to all these places uh, and it's like a trip down memory lane. And so to be able to go visit a place that I, will probably only get to go a couple times in my life and to do it on a bicycle. I mean, that was a big deal in and of itself. Um, 
so now I'm there and very quickly the staff of the castle got wind of who I was. I mean, the fact that I was a bicyclist and a McLeod and I had my dad's ashes. I mean, that was like the triple, <laughs> the, the, tri- the trifecta of like curiosity. And so people would just come up to me and they want to know my story and take my photo. And uh, anyway, five o'clock rolls around and uh, castle closes for business and everyone leaves. And I go back out and I get my bike and the custodian meets me out front again. And he basically makes a grand gesture with his arms and he says, okay, it's all yours. And I said, well, what do you mean? It's all mine. He said, you know, it's all yours. You, uh, he's like, I figured you wouldn't want to scatter your dad's ashes with all these, you know, tourists snapping their photos and, and um, being around that you'd want some privacy. And so I invite you to basically have the entire grounds to yourself um, uh, scatter your fa- father's ashes, take as much time as you want. And then when you're done, um, come on inside. My wife and I would love to hear your stories and come have dinner with us, which again, ask any McLeod, uh, anywhere in the world, if they've ever dreamed of like being inside the McLeod castle and having dinner there. I mean, this is not something most people get to do. And then the kicker was at this point, it's, you know, five o'clock. Normally at that point of the day, I'm looking for a place to camp. And so that was already on my mind. I was like, okay, what do I do after all this? I still need to know where I'm going to sleep tonight. And the custodian then said, um, and then after dinner, uh, I can't let you sleep inside because the, the chief isn't home, but I invite you to, to camp outside. And, you know, they've never let anyone do that before. Oh, man. And here they were, here they were allowing me to do this. And again, it goes back to my, my mantra of like, don't say no for other people. Because if I had just assumed that they were going to say no to my request of scattering my dad's ashes, I would have just shown up, scattered his ashes, and like never had all that. But instead, I got to have the most amazing, beautiful moment where I could privately scatter his ashes along the lock uh, and then have this amazing dinner with the custodian and his wife inside. And then afterwards I slept under like, and then I had this great photo of my tent right underneath one of the little castle eaves. Um, I, have a qu- I, have so, a quick question, I have a quick question yeah. for you. Uh, in any way, did you kind of like visualize this before you went? The actual, like the experiences it ended up being, yeah. uh, no, I mean, I, so when I, when I called them, I thought, I didn't really even know what I was looking for. I thought, okay, I just call them. Maybe they'd have a bagpiper, you know, come play something. Um, I certainly did not expect that they would have let me camp there um, or that I'd have dinner inside or that it even have like the entire like castle property to myself. I mean, that was just like above and beyond what I anticipated, but uh, but I will say the one thing that this trip has time and time again um, reinforced for me is this notion of the kindness of people and the goodness of people and that they genuinely people want to help. They want to be a part of something good and noble and meaningful. And so while I didn't necessarily anticipate that actual experience, I had a feeling that if I just put myself in that situation and I ask someone for help and, and I, and I obviously show them my good intentions that something, something important is going to come of it. Um, and I think that that has been proven time and time again on my trip. It's not like I'm going around asking people for all these handouts. Like they, people are doing it because they want to be a part of something good. Um, and I just happen to give them a good reason to, to focus that energy towards what I'm doing. I mean, it's also, what I'm hearing from you is just having gratitude for the small things too. And, and that that's essential for having gratitude for the big things, which is just kind of being alive. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is, 
it's the key theme I think for anyone who travels is as you travel, you realize how alive you are. I mean, I say this in something all sincerely, like sincerity, like I have broken down crying. I'd say somewhere between a dozen, 20, maybe more times on my trip, like where I'll just be biking and all of a sudden I'll be in my thoughts and I'll be seeing some beautiful scenery and I will just tear streaming down my face. Not because of any reason other than the fact that I just was feeling so alive in that moment where I was just seeing some beautiful lake or mountain or maybe some animal across the road. And I was just feeling alive. And like, when in my life had I ever just randomly started breaking down crying out of pure, pure joy? Never. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on this trip, it's like a regular occurrence. Yeah. It's a, it's It's, a really special feeling. It's a, it's a combination of being emotionally vulnerable and being present. Yeah. I, I will say, though, there's a flip side to that, which is, you know, your emotions are always pretty raw on these journeys. So, like, while I can have these amazing, amazing highs, the lows are also extremely low. Uh, yeah. I mean, there there are days where I am just, like, going hoarse, like a frog in my throat because I'm screaming so loudly that I'm – because of my frustration, because I can't find a place to camp or because – you know, something just broke on my bicycle or whatever the case might be, or the, he- or the winds just won't stop blowing in my face. And because you have no other way to vent your frustration, you just end up screaming at the sky. Um, and uh, so you end up having these incredible, like, emotional swings. Um, but uh, but that, that part, too, though, is part of the journey, because if you don't have those moments, then you don't have the beauty of then meeting that perfect stranger who then invites you into their home and they lift you up. Um, I think I think something that I've learned as I've uh, been on the planet for now 43 years is that um, it's essential to feel both and be present in both the stuff that really, really sucks and the stuff that feels really, really good because both of them have hidden potential. And and that to me is um, that to me is kind of the whole point you know you can you can have a what on the face value looks like something that could be a terrible moment in your life but really that terrible moment if you see the hidden potential in it isn't it could be it could be a beautiful moment that changes your life and and i think that we all tend to want to label things with either a positive or negative experience. And some of them really do feel like shit. And those experiences really do feel like crap. But what's the most human experience are the the feelings that are neither really, really good or really, really bad. The human experience and the true human experience are those feelings and those emotions that are both, that are the gray. That's the true feeling. And that's the true human experience. And I think that from hearing you talk, I just feel that the bike seems like a vehicle literally and figuratively for you to be more present and for you to be more aware of everything around you. I mean, it is the perfect vehicle for it. I mean, it, it, it gives you perspective. It gives you time and space to have that perspective. I mean, as I, as I've, as I've, anyone who's ever ridden a bike a long distance will tell you, I mean, it's the perfect vehicle because, you know, you go fast enough that you can cover a lot of ground, but you, you go slow enough that you get to experience everything. Um, and it also brings you to places that you never would have gone to. I mean, I, 
probably my favorite places on my journey have always been the ones I never thought I was going to be in. There, there's some small out of the way village that I went there mostly out of necessity, either because I needed to refill my water bottle or I needed a place to snack, or maybe it was so hot that I just needed to get some shade. And then because I stepped into one of these small little out of the way places, all of a sudden that's where I encounter some human kindness or some, some experience that I never expected to. Um, and the bicycle enables all that because so many times I think to myself as I'm biking, if I was in a bus right now, I would have just, I would have been up those Alps in no time or I would have <laughs> been, you know, already in Cape town by now, but because I'm on a bicycle, like, you know, you've, you've, it takes you eight hours just to go, you know, sometimes 60 miles or 40 miles, it depends on the, the, the elevation that you're doing or the, the wind. But, um, the bicycle gives you that time and space to really, have that perspective. Um, and also because you're on these long journeys, um, if anyone, I always try to encourage people, if you're going to do a long journey, if you can try to make it at least a year, because, uh, obviously any journey is a good journey. I will never tell you someone if you, even a week journey is a great, it's better than no journey at all. But I think that the changes that some of us might want to have in ourselves, they start to become more permanent after a year. Um, and it's all just because that you just need that time and that space to really um, experience a lot and to wrestle with it. Um, and so what happens is like on the bike, by the time I've been chased by a hundred dogs, I'm no longer as scared of dogs anymore. Or by the time I've had, you know, dozens of days of terrible headwinds, well, I can get through the next one because I remember all the times I got through the other ones. And so you just end up having this reservoir of experience that you can draw on at any given point. And what's kind of cool is then you see how that carries, carries over into your life. And so on the bicycle, there's not a, there's not a terrain in this world I'm, I'm now intimidated by because I've been to the harshest environments in Africa. I've been up some of the steepest, windiest, you know, most treacherous roads um, in Europe or in America, like I've been chased by all sorts of animals. And so there's nothing on the bike that intimidates me. Uh, but what's neat is the confidence I've gained from that carries over into my personal life into other aspects of my life uh, that I never anticipated uh, when I started all this. Yeah. I mean, I felt, I feel like I kind of robbed you of closure on your on scouting your dad's ashes. And I wanted to be able to give you that because I, I, I sort of derailed this in a different direction, but no, no. after, after you camped, what happened the following day? Well, the next day I got up and had my bowl of cereal and then, and left because uh, at that point, that chapter of my journey was now completed. And then just like with every other milestone along my trip, I was ready for the next one to begin. And so at that point um, I was looking forward to the next section of my journey, which was, okay, now let's get to the mainland of, of Europe. You know, at this point, I was playing it, you know, quote unquote, safe in Ireland and Britain, um, where the language is at least the same. Uh, it was now time to really test myself uh, and to go to the mainland of Europe, which, you know, I'd been to once before with uh, that company Backroads when I went to that very first bike trip I did in Italy. But that was, you know, in a very organized fashion, you know, where I was, you know, in a tour group. Um, so it, it definitely gave me, you know, butterflies to be returning back to the place where I had had those two previously failed trips where I was mugged in Spain and then also was in Brussels when 9-11 had previously happened. And so, um, I was looking forward to that next 
um, learning curve of, okay, now how do I start to bicycle around in places where the road signs are different or people don't necessarily speak English, or they might even be hostile to me if they, if I try to speak English. Um, and so I, I started off by, you know, crossing the channel from England to France and, uh, you know, the, just like with the beginning of my trip in the States where I was really nervous about things like going over the Rockies or camping in someone's backyard. Now I had, similar but um but different um anxieties so you know the 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 motion was the same but the things i was anxious about was different and so it was you know i had to learn a few basic phrases and in in every language i know how to ask how to ask uh, for water um because that's like the most fundamental thing i need on a bicycle is to be able to get water um so anyway so the journey basically continued on and i did northern europe and then i went into scandinavia and I just got more and more comfortable riding through these different cultures in Europe um, and where things sh- shifted again was when I left Western Europe and entered um, what's traditionally known as Eastern Europe. Um, and that was, you know, that there, there's a good story there. Um, and, and it's a good example of how your mind can play tricks on you. Um, and also how you, you know, we sometimes get wedded to these, uh, stereotypes that we have in our head. And so, um, my very first day entering Slovakia, uh, I was coming over the border from Austria. And at this point in my trip, I had another streak going where I hadn't paid for a place to stay since actually since Scotland. So, um, I ended up, uh, on a streak of five months where I went five straight months without never once paying for a place to sleep. Like, I mean, who goes to Europe and does that? Who, who spends that's, five months in Europe that's and never once, yeah, literally never once paid a dime. And, and like, it wasn't just camping in the woods. Like I would literally, because the streak sometimes becomes its own challenge. I would go to campsites and literally get the, the owner of the campground to let me stay on the campground for free. Cause I'd hear my story. I mean, the, after, after a while, your story becomes so big that, uh, people can't deny it. I mean, you tell them, Oh, I've biked all over America. Now I'm biking across Europe and I haven't paid for a place in months. Oh, and I'm doing it for charity. Um, I mean, who's going to be the one that says, Oh yeah, well here, give me 40 euros for a campsite. Uh, so as a result, I ended up going five months without paying for a place. Um, so anyway, I was in Slovakia my very first night. And when you cross the border from Austria and Slovakia, I mean, it is, it is um, viscerally noticeable, the difference between the cultures. Um, I mean, a lot of times you cross a border in Europe and you can't really tell that you've left one country and entered another. But, you know, when I crossed that border in Slovakia, I felt like I was like right on the set of some like, you know, Eli Roth, you know, movie. Um, (laughs) And, you know, looking back, of course, I feel ashamed that I had that stereotype in my head, but that's what, but that's all I knew. Right. I mean, basically growing up as a child of the eighties, you know, we were taught that America's good and the, and anything socialist or communist is bad. And so, you know, you cross that border and you see all these old um, cement, you know, they're not very, they're not very pretty, like these old buildings that clearly look like a relic from a former time. Um, and immediately I started getting very nervous, uh, because I just felt uncomfortable again. And, uh, I, 
I didn't have a place lined up. So that, that first day I, I was in Bratislava, which is the capital, which is a beautiful, beautiful city, but I didn't have a place lined up to stay. And because I had this ridiculous streak going, I didn't want to break my streak that night um, and get a hostel or something. And so I looked at, the, looked at the map and I saw that just south of Bratislava is this forested area by a river. Um, and that if I could just get there, I could probably find a place to camp like I've done countless times on my trip. So I did my usual routine of going to a grocery store at five o'clock in the evening, get my groceries for making dinner that night and for breakfast the next day. And just as I'm leaving the grocery store, uh, I'm biking down this like wooded gravel path. And this guy comes up to me on his, on foot and he starts waving his hands and he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, you know, anytime that happens, you get nervous because you don't know what, why the person's stopping you. Like why of all the people is he stopping me? I'm on a bicycle. Um, so you, you never know what their agenda is. Are they looking to, you know, ask you for something? Do they want to hurt you? Do they want to help you? You never know. So my, um, my nerves were already on full alert at that point. Um, so I get off the bike and he's pointing in the direction that I am heading towards. And he says, there are dead bodies over there. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What? And he said, in English, I mean, he spoke English. He said, there are dead bodies back there. And I'm like, I'm like trying to process this. Like, okay, why is he telling me this? Are there really dead bodies? Like my mind now is trying to answer a number of questions. And so I said to him, I said, okay, well, uh, maybe call the police. And he said, no, no, you can't call the police around here. You know, the police are bad. The police are out to get people, people like you, like tourists. And so I'm like, okay, great. Well, uh, thanks for the heads up, but I, I've got to get going now. Because um, again, I still didn't know what this guy's agenda was. Was he really trying to just tell me about some dead bodies? Or was he like, was he trying to shake me down? I have no idea. So I leave him and I continue on the bike. But at this point now I'm really rattled because, you know, it's, it's starting to get night. It is spooky. I'm going past these like old burnt out like condominiums that like have like the roofs are missing. And so it's very possible that there was a dead body somewhere. I have no idea. Um, so I just said to myself, okay, we'll just get farther South, like go as far as you can before night falls and then just push off in, as deep into the woods as you can and set up your camp. So, um, so I do that and now night is falling. And the problem with the woods there is uh, they were the under the, um, the underbrush was so thick that I couldn't actually push into the woods. So as a result, I had to kind of put my camp adjacent to the woods um, and I found a little berm um, that got me a little bit high off the ground. But basically, anyone who happened to come down that path would have seen me, um, particularly if they had a truck with headlights. So I was a little exposed. Um, and now I'm certainly nervous that there's, you know, these cops out to get tourists and there's dead bodies and God only knows what else. Um, so I set up my tent and uh, I finally get it all pitched and night's fallen and it's starting to rain. And at this point, normally I would just get into my tent, make my dinner and then go to sleep. But just as I unzip the tent, all of a sudden I hear a very distinct uh, rat tat tat. Um, And then like 30 seconds later, another rat tat tat. And it is very clear to me that this is a machine gun firing and it is very nearby. And on top of it, there's dogs barking. And for some reason, the sky is glowing orange, um, just like pulsating this orange glow. And so now I'm totally freaking out because I'm in the middle of the woods 
in in this foreign country that I've only known b- bad things about because of Hollywood and the news. Um, I had this guy telling me that there's dead bodies supposedly nearby. There's cops out to get me. And now I'm hearing machine guns going off with dogs barking and the sky is glowing orange. So at this point, I'm like, well, what do I do? Like, um, you know, I have basically two choices. Choice A is you just sit in your tent. You don't turn on any lights and you just hope no one finds you. And then get up the next morning and get out of there as quickly as you can. Uh, And then the other choice, which is the least desirable, is you know, you pack everything up and you get out of there. Uh, and after thinking about it, I realized there was just no way I was going to be able to go to sleep that night uh, because I'd just be too nervous. So I decided just to play it safe and forget this ridiculous streak of not paying for a place to stay that I would just go to the nearest hotel and just go get safe. So I packed everything up. It's pouring rain now, and I'm just like now really miserable. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm also kind of just like mad at myself that I got myself into this pickle. Um, and I start biking out of there. Um, and about a few miles into that, I discovered why the sky was glowing orange. And it was nothing to do with the dogs barking or the machine guns. It was just an oil refinery. And you know how every refinery has the flame out at the top. Um, and so that was explaining one of the mysteries to me. And then uh, next I get to this hotel that I found and it's like this spooky hotel in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of like the overlook in the shining, um, just in the middle of nowhere. And there's nobody in it. It's just like, it's a huge hotel and there's nobody there, but I walk in and I tell the receptionist basically my whole story. And she took such pity on me that, uh, she ended up giving me a room for free. So I got to keep my streak alive of not having to pay for a place. Cause now I had this free hotel room. And then I said to her, I was like, well, what's going on with these machine guns? Why, were, why was that happening? And she, just, she said, oh, that, that's nothing. That was just the military practicing because one of our presidents died and we're having a state funeral for him this weekend or something. Um, and so this whole thing basically was like a story that was playing in my head uh, when in reality I was perfectly fine and perfectly safe. Now, you know, now it's possible that like, of course, something could have happened, but, uh, but I was never really truly in danger. It was just this perceived danger I was in. So... So anyway, so that was my first encounter in what's considered Eastern Europe. And the irony is, is Eastern Europe is the place now where I've spent the most time on my trip. I mean, I'm now a resident of Eastern Europe, um, or I guess you'd probably call Croatia Central Europe. But, um, but to an American, Croatia is Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, I've basically been, you know, in this part of the world ever since, other than when I went down to Africa. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I'll I'll pause there and see if see if you wanted to ask any follow up questions about before I <laughs> yeah, continue sure. on. <laughs> I, it's interesting that the thing that you know it goes back to like what we were talking about, which is like the the hidden potential in things, right? Like this thing on the surface seems scary and terrifying. This Eastern Europe um, stereotype, right? And then and then what you found is that it actually was a place where you wanted to settle down. And yeah. I'm and I'm curious, I'm curious when you went to Croatia as opposed to Terlingua, what made you settle down there? Yeah, so that's a great question because uh I think it's possible that I could have found Croatia anywhere. 
I think I was receptive to the idea that if I found the right community and I found the right, the, the right place with the right ingredients to it. Um, and for me, like a, a, as I've been biking along, I've kind of been figuring out in my head, like, what are those ingredients? I mean, like for me, it has to have natural beauty that has to have the ability to go biking, things like that. Um, access to water. So, you know, there's, there's some places in the world that would not be a fit just because they don't meet those requirements, but there's plenty of places that do. And certainly as I've biked around, I've fallen in love with, you know, places in Ireland and places in Scotland and France. I've absolutely fell in love with France, uh, Norway. Um, and then of course, going back to America with, you know, Texas and Montana and other places. So the potential was there for me to have settled in any of them. The difference was I wasn't ready uh, then to settle at, at any of them. Uh, why create, why I ended up settling in Croatia was um, I was very much aware of the fact that as my trip went on, you know, my, my attitudes were changing, my behaviors were changing. And I had heard some stories. I mean, I, I heard a story from a guy who hosted me in Pensacola, Florida about some travelers he had hosted uh, before me. Um, and they have been traveling the world for like five years or so. And when he hosted them, they, they were kind of rude towards him. They, they, they acted almost as if like, like they deserved to have a meal, uh, given to them and that they should have been given a shower and a bed, like almost as if it was like a, a right that they should be expecting, not a, not a privilege that they were, that they were lucky to have. And, when he told me that, I kind of remember back then saying to myself, I hope that's not me. That can't be me. I never want to get to the point in my journey where I forget why I started this journey in the first place. And if I ever notice that I'm starting to become one of those people, that that is the signal to me that it's time to stop. Um, and so what happened was, and I'll, we'll get into Africa next. Oh, I'd love to get into Africa at some point because there, there's a whole reason why I ended up in Africa. And that's with my, my charity work, charity work. But but just to, to go back to why I ended up settling in Croatia was I, so I spent a few months living in Croatia uh, for a winter and this was on uh, my Europe trip kind of spanned two summers. And so the winter in between them, I, I, I hunkered down in Croatia um, and I just fell in love with this island community. But the reason why I came back to it was by the time I got to Cape Town at the end of all this journeying I had done, I mean, at that point I had biked 35,000 miles um, which is like more than the circumference of the globe. Whoa. Um, That's crazy, had, man. <laughs> yeah. And like, I still loved the biking part of it. I still loved, I'd still today be out there bicycling from place to place. That part never has gotten old. But what was getting old for me was all the routines that come with it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, pitched my tent and then broken it down and then set, my, set up my sleeping bag and, you know, it was all a routine now. And I used to like have it all dialed down to like this, the most efficient routine possible, because at the end of the day, like when you have to bike 80 miles in a day and you need to spend two of those hours uh, each day, setting up your tent and breaking it down, like it's all about efficiency. And so the routines that were starting to creep up as a result of this journey were starting to get monotonous. And then the thing that really became a problem for me was I got really tired of talking about the trip. Um, now, I never minded talking about it with friends or with family or with someone who gave me a place to stay um, because in, that, in those environments, I was much more relaxed. I was much more, you know, uh, you know, give me a glass of wine. I'll talk with you all night about my trip. 
But where it was becoming a problem was you can't, you know, I just pull into a gas station and all I want to do is fill up my water bottles and then continue on my, my journey. And you can't do that because people are naturally going to want to know what you're doing, why you're doing it, where you're coming from, where you're going, how can you afford to do it? I mean, all these questions and you could ask the same questions over and over and over again. I mean, thousands of times I've been asked the same questions. And after a while, I just got so tired of talking about it. And I realized early on in my journey that people were giving me all this kindness and the only currency I had to pay them back was my stories. You know, that those are, that's my currency is when I stay in someone's home, that the, the exchange there is they are giving you a place to stay and in exchange, you know, you should tell them your stories. Now they're not expecting you to, but that is kind of what the hope is. That's the currency. That's the currency. And if I can't do that anymore, then, I, then I'm not living up to my end of the bargain. And so what happened was when I got to Africa, um, as amazing of, that, uh, as, of an experience that that whole part of my journey was, I was so burnt out that I'll, I'll just tell you this one quick example. Uh, one day I'm riding through, um, I believe it was Botswana. And, you know, Botswana is one of the most desolate places you're going to like travel through. I mean, you, you go all day and you don't see anything. Um, and it's hot, it's, you know, hotter than anything you can imagine. And every now and then, like, I'd find like a little picnic table that might be half standing still because it's just never been kept up. And so I'd find this little picnic table by the side of the road and eat my lunch there. And luckily, you know, there might be a tree overhead to give me some shade. So one day I'm in Botswana and I'm ready to have my lunch. And I see like the one picnic table out of 100 miles. And my heart sinks when I see that there's a guy already sitting there because I know that as soon as I show up, this guy is going to want to ask me all the questions I've been asked a thousand times already. And all they want to do is eat my peanut butter sandwich and drink my water and then continue on. Um, so I sit down and of course he starts asking me his questions and I explain to him that I'm riding a bike to Cape town and he's just incredulous. He goes, what you're riding a bicycle to Cape town. And like to him, it's like the most amazing thing ever. And to me, I'm like, yes, I'm just riding a bicycle to Cape town. Why can't people understand this already? <laughs> and I was just getting so frustrated and I realized in the moment, I was like, okay, time out. You've become that guy that you don't, that you said you didn't want to be. And I realized that that was the key. That was the signal for me that it was time to take a break. And so I decided to settle back in Croatia because one, I had fallen in love with this community to begin with. I mean, no differently than I fell in love with Terlingua. Um, but two, I knew that I needed to really take a long break so that if and when I ever continue on with the journey, I will hopefully have the same enthusiasm for it in all aspects of it. Like I did when I started from Portland, Oregon. Um, and so, and the reason why I chose Croatia versus, you know, going back to America, for instance, is at least while I'm here, I'm not actively traveling, but I still have the mindset of a traveler. I mean, I'm, I still have basically the same clothes and gear that I showed up in. Um, I still have to like learn new cultures and customs. I'm actively learning the language. And so uh, it's keeping my mind uh, in that same mindset of being a traveler, even though I'm not actively traveling. Uh, and it's been also nice because, you know, when you're traveling on a bike, you are frequently passing through places at a, at a decent, at a decent pace. You might spend a night or two in a place, maybe you spend like a week. Um, but for the most part, you know, you don't just hunker down in places uh, while 
being here now has really given me an opportunity to really, really immerse myself in a single culture and to get to know the Croatian culture in a way that I never would have, you know, gotten to know the other cultures as I was just biking through there. So, um, so anyway, so I'm kind of living here right now. And uh, I don't know, actually, if I'll uh, get back on the bike and continue on to Asia like I originally planned, or if I'll just buy a piece of land and build a house here or, or go do something else entirely different. Um, I'm just kind of waiting to see how I feel after a certain amount of time. Um, so that's, that's how I ended up here. I have a quick question for you. Um, why, why do you think... I, it, it just seems like you are you're super hyper self aware, <laughs> and that's a hard thing to be. Um, and we talked a lot about this in the previous one, but like that one conversation with a stranger in Botswana caused you to end your trip more or less, or it indicated to you that you needed to move on and do something differently when did you how did you develop that sort of like antenna and skill set is that just a product of you thinking things through all the time and that you've conditioned your mind to always be mindful how how do you how do you do that without getting exhausted because for me sometimes (laughs) being hyper self-aware and vigilant is like it's hard because you can't actually be present sometimes you know what i mean yeah it is actually really exhausting. Um, the, you know, there's a, there's an upside and a downside to everything. And I have, a, I am very self-aware. Uh, and I think it's largely because I'm a very active, um, overly active mind. Um, I, I tend to think through everything. Um, and while there's the upside to that are things like being able to bicycle around the world um, and, and making the decisions that led me to do it you know, there's the down, there's the very real downsides. Like for instance, I have a really, a very real anxiety with my health because my brain, it's the same function, the same brain that made me stop and question for six months, whether I wanted to stay, stay at Apple or to, or to do this bicycle trip. It's the same brain that when it sees a mole that looks a little bit discolored on my finger and starts to really freak out, is it skin cancer or not? Um, and so that, that's the, that's the downside to having a very overactive brain. But in terms of like the self-awareness that also probably just goes all the way back to my childhood. I mean, I I think I mentioned this in my, in the last conversation, I mean, I wasn't very popular growing up and, uh, it's not that I was ever really bullied, uh, or if I was, it wasn't like, you know, severe bullying. Um, but I certainly didn't fit in. And I think my efforts at always trying to fit in made me very hyper aware of, of myself. Right. And, and certainly my shortcomings. I mean, I, I certainly was aware of, you know, my physical flaws and, and any of the flaws I might have. Um, but I think all that stems from just wanting to be liked and accepted when I was, you know, 10 years old and, and being made fun of because I couldn't say my name properly or because I had acne when I was a teenager or, because my ears were too big or I had a goofy looking retainer. I mean, whatever the reasons were and all of those were actual reasons. Um, I think that that just led me to be this very aware person of, of what I, what actions I was making and the consequences it had for myself and for others. Um, so th- there's the dark side to it, but then the upside to that is that it also has enabled me to be very considerate. And so 
usually when I get into an argument with someone, for instance, like I'm the first one to kind of see their perspective. I'll say, okay, you're right. I, I got into an argument with my sister last week over an Instagram post I wanted to make. And uh, she called me out on it because I was being a little judgmental on it. Um, and, and I, you know, first my defense was up because at first I wanted to like rebuff her and say, no, 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 you're wrong. I'm right. But I thought about it. I was like, you know what? She's actually right. I was being judgmental. And so later that day I went up to her and I apologized. And you know, I said, you're absolutely right. I was being judgmental. And I think just it, that self-awareness allows you to be really empathetic and to see both sides of a, of a picture and, and really not just take yourself too seriously, even though I'm constantly living in my own head. Um, but anyway, it is exhausting. It's not like I have made it so that it's uh, it's an easy way of living. It's just the only way I know. So when, when you hit Cape Town, what was, what was the feeling and how was it different than when you circled the United States? That's a great question. Uh, I will say relief was my feeling in Cape Town. Um, I was so burnt out by the time I got there. Um, and I was really just looking forward to getting back to Croatia and, and not be biking anymore, not, not bike, not bike touring anymore. Uh, whereas when I finished America, like I was still just supercharged ready. I was like, okay, what's next? Let, let's get to Ireland. Let's, let's see how this goes. Um, but when I got to Cape town, I was just so exhausted. Um, I mean, and that journey was amazing. I mean, there was such incredible moments on that trip through Africa. Uh, in a way I almost wish like the Africa journey had happened either much, much later or much earlier. But when it happened, it just came at a time when I was already burnt out going into it. And so by the time I, and then Africa is just as tough of a place mentally and physically as you can imagine. Um, so by the time I got to Cape Town, I was just toast. Uh, and I was just ready to, to, call, to call it for a while. Uh, I mean, I, I will always dream about continuing with the travels. I have all these you know, thoughts in my head about where I'll go eventually next. But, but I knew that when I got to Cape Town that that was it for a while. Did you feel like, you know, we, we talked about a couple of different themes in the last one. And then this one, it's sort of a similar thing. Is like, what happens when you reach that finish line? What happens when you are running to stand yeah. still? And what was, what was the middle state for you at that point? Besides, that's, that's... besides exhaustion, was it, was it like, I need to stop moving in order to see what I've learned from these experiences? I need to stop moving in order to appreciate the experiences so that I could possibly go on another one. What, where were you in your head? It was, it was a little bit of both, but I'm, I'm glad you asked that because, uh, again, there's never, ever one, one reason with me. There's always multiple reasons why I do anything. Uh, so, and because I have this like very analytical brain that is constantly thinking about things, it's not like I make any snap decisions. So even though I mentioned like that conversation I had Botswana about like, about hanging it up for a while, that that was one conversation of many that like it that I had had, and and I and I was aware of the fact that this was brewing inside of me. It was just that that one conversation was kind of like the one that was the breaking point. Um, but it was something that had been brewing in me for a while, and so as this was brewing, and I started to realize that I needed to hang it up for a while, then very quickly the next question is, okay, well, what am I going to do then? Like, what what's next? Um, and for me, it's always a, 
I've always lived my life knowing that like, it's great to always have something to look forward to. So you finish one thing and be excited for the next thing to do um, rather than be dragging your heels, wanting to go back to the thing you just left behind because then you're just going to be miserable. So for me, the idea to go back and live in Croatia and to learn the language and immerse myself in the culture was in and of itself kind of a, a, a reward to look forward to. But I had something even bigger in mind. And that is, I really do want to attempt to write a book about all this. Um, I am very careful <laughs> to not put that expectation out there, certainly on myself or in others' minds that it's going to actually happen. Because first of all, writing a book, you know, this day and age is extremely difficult. Um, just because you may have a good story doesn't mean it's going to actually see the light of day. Um, and not to mention, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who have done something similar as me, uh, or if not better, I think in our first conversation, you and I had, Trey, like I mentioned to you how, you know, there's probably someone doing handstands across Asia right now, <laughs> you know, way, you know, something way cooler than anything I've done. Um, and so the point is like, I'm very realistic. Like I'm not necessarily writing the book cause I think it's going to be published or, or be a bestseller. I mean, it'd be great if it was, if someone wants to pick up the, you know, the Hollywood rights to my book and then I never have to go back to a actual job again, that'd be amazing. But that's not why I'm doing it. Um, I really feel this, uh, this need to write the story of what I've experienced, not because I want to memorialize the trip for myself, but because of these, these themes that we've been talking about, the themes of kindness, the themes of overcoming your fears to, to pursue your, your dreams and your passions. These are all things that I feel like most people can relate to. And if by me telling my story on how I did it can help in any way, someone else think about their own life and their own dreams. Uh, and maybe it helps them approach going after it themselves um, then to me, that is a noble and worthy effort. And so um, I knew that if I was ever going to write the story of my travels, including going all the way back to the very beginning into why I did it and everything that happened in America, I needed to start doing it relatively soon because I'm starting to forget things now. <laughs> I often joke that uh, riding a bicycle around the world is way easier than writing a book about it because at least on the bike, if you only go five miles, you can look back and say, oh, I did five miles today. Whereas with a book, you know, you could spend all day trying to write something and still feel like it's garbage at the end of it. Um, yeah, it's funny. We, but, we, talked, we talked about, you know, when you met your mom at school and you told mm -hmm. your mom and your dad that you wanted to be a writer and your mom said, well, you know, you need to have experiences before you can be a writer. Right. And that's, it's true. It's, it, it really is true, man. Like I'm a writer also, and I just finished a script with a friend of mine about uh, a teenager growing up on the border of Laredo and Nueva Laredo during the drug war. And that's not my story, but it's someone else's story. And I'm, helping that person amplify their story the same way that I'm helping you amplify yours. And from my experience as a human being on this planet, the more stories we can tell and the more experiences we can share, the closer we're going to be. And I think that's a really, really important thing. Um, so uh, I know how hard it is to write brother. It's not easy, 
but if you can ride a bike around the world, you can, you can write a book. Rory, before we finish up, tell me a little bit about the, the charity that, that you, that you represent. Uh, so I knew from the very beginning, I had the idea to do this trip. Like as soon as that light bulb went off in my head in the Canadian Rockies to do this trip across America, I knew right away that it was going to be the most like selfish, self-indulgent thing I could ever do. And I mean that in a good way. Like, I don't see that as a bad thing, but it's true. Like I was going to stay in all these amazing places, see all these amazing sites, eat all this amazing food, and it would all be about me. And I felt very strongly back then that, um, that it would be great if someone else could benefit as a result of it. Uh, and I know a lot of people, everyone has their reasons for doing these journeys and a lot of people do it for charity. Others do it because they're trying to, you know, just experience the world or to be more present. Others are doing it because they're trying to um, maybe mend some relationship. There's no wrong or right reason to do these journeys. Uh, But for me personally, it felt very important that if I was going to do this, someone else should benefit. Um, And maybe, I mean, maybe I'd even feel better about doing it, to be honest, Um, just knowing that I was not just about me. And so, uh, but then I realized like, we, you know, I don't really want whatever organization I choose. I don't want like their charitable aspect to be some side project. You know, I want it to be the only thing they do. So sure. I cleared my web browser and I just Googled bicycle donation Africa. And the very first thing that came up was world bicycle relief. And when I saw that, I was like, you know, th- this, this can't be true. Like this, this seems like a hoax. Like that's, uh, that seems too good to be true. Cause I clicked on it and it had everything I was looking for. Um, and so I called them because I was certain that it must be some sort of scam. And uh, sure enough, I mean, and, and then I found out the story of the organization. It's an amazing story. So just real quickly um, back in that uh, 2004, 2005 Christmas day tsunami that devastated much of Southeast Asia um, that terrible event, when that happened, uh, one of the founders of SRAM, which is a bicycle component maker based in America, um, he and his wife were in Sri Lanka. And like a lot of people there, they saw just how devastated that whole region was from that, that tsunami. Uh, all the roads washed out, houses were totally blown away, power lines were down. And what he was able to see was that uh, the relief effort was having a really hard time reaching the places that were hit the hardest. Um, And so he went back to SRAM and he said, we got to start making some bicycles right away. And it wasn't just good enough to put some like, and you can't just put some like fancy, you know, road bike in a place like that. You needed something rugged and heavy duty. And so he's an engineer. And so he designed this prototype for what ultimately became what's known as the Buffalo, the Buffalo bicycle. Um, and it's this very heavy duty, simple, um, bicycle that can withstand any terrain in the world. Um, it's a single speed. So therefore there's no gears. So it's, it won't break down as, as easily as, as a fancier bike might. Um, it's got coaster brakes, um, and it can withstand weight. Uh, I think it can hold like up to 200 pounds or something on the back of it. Dang. So yeah, I mean, it is, it's a tank. So they brought these bicycles that they designed to Sri Lanka. They gave away a bunch of them. Um, to the relief effort there. And they thought it would be like a one and done deal. But it was so successful that afterwards, all these NGOs started calling them up and saying, hey, can you do that over in our part of the world? And very quickly, World Bicycle Relief was born. 
Um, and ever since then, they've given out the numbers always changing. So uh, I'm not entirely sure what the, the, the current figure is, but something like 450,000 bicycles um, to people in underprivileged areas all throughout the world, primarily focusing on um, children so that they can get an education um, as well as farmers so that they can bring their goods to market and then nurses to help deliver medicine. I think, yeah. you know, I think it's awesome, man. I think that it sounds like your intent needs to shift to the writing aspect of it so that you can uh, either have it physically in front of you and you can, you could look back on it or you could use that experience to motivate you to go to other places around the world like Asia. If I'm going to be in this position, I should be sharing this, I should be sharing these stories of kindness with others. I should be helping to remind everyone else in the world, just like I needed reminding, that the world isn't just what we're seeing on the news, that there is this other truth out there. And that is the, 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 the true version of people living their lives, being kind to each other, giving generosity. That is a story that just doesn't get told enough. And if I'm, if I'm able to tell that, in a way that helps shed a little bit of perspective, then for me, it's, it's, it's definitely worth doing. So um, we'll, we will see, but just like everything else, it's all, you know, if, if I was overly confident before on one thing, now I'm terrified about the writing. So we'll see. <laughs> well, dude, I can't think of a better way to, to end this conversation. Um, thank you, Rory, for coming on talk about. Absolutely. Thanks for having me very much. And for having me again, I feel honored. <laughs> That's it. Part two over. Thank you, Rory McLeod. Up next, I'm going to do some more research. I need to find more people who have done walkabouts. If you know of anybody, please email me, Instagram me, and let me know. Would love to talk to them. All right. Bye.